News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. We made more for a lot of things in 2022. Just about everything at the grocery store cost us more. You noticed that. I mean, it really was the year of our budgets being strained. So what can we expect for 2023? Will there be any relief? What do we have to adjust for? Well, joining us now is George Rodopoulos, who's an associate professor in the Department of Economics at York University. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. So was there another year like 2022 in terms of what you watched, the roller coaster ride that our economy went on? Uh, well, the only comparison is in the, the early 80s. But um, and you know what? It may still continue next year. Um, interest rates are still going to stay high because inflation is stubbornly high. The only way you reduce inflation is to have uh, high interest rates to reduce borrowing and spending. So the Bank is, of Canada is determined to get inflation down and they're going to keep interest rates up and that may slow down the economy. And what do you think that means for us on a day-to-day basis? Right. So as you mentioned, uh, look carefully at your budget. Um, you want to, well, distinguish needs from wants, cut back on the spending on those wants, buy essential items only, um, look at your subscriptions that are automatically uh, taken out of your account every month. Uh, cancel them. Also, pay attention to your credit card debt. First of all, you want to reduce debt as much as possible, given the high interest rates. And you want to make sure that you, you know the time where you have a free interest rate period, and then you get charged um, after that. So you want to make sure that you didn't get charged these high interest rates. Um, bill payments, avoid late charges. These are all ways to avoid um, high interest payments on your debt. And do you think people are, 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 are people, do you think they're doing those things though? Are we taking a closer look at our budgets? Well, I hope so. I think they are. I mean, interest rates just jumped dramatically since the beginning of the year. Remember the beginning of the year, they're almost zero. So, I mean, this is a big shock and uh, probably what you'll see uh, in the last quarter of this year, uh, when the data comes out early next year, you will see that the economy has slowed down here in Canada. Uh, you will see much slower growth and uh, slower growth in the, in, the, in the first year. So uh, the numbers are not out yet in terms of spending, but um, signs indicate that, yes, people have paid close attention and uh, reduced spending. And so you don't see that changing in terms of keeping those interest rates high. That's going to start to really affect people's mortgage rates too, isn't it? Or how much they're paying every month. Right. If unfortunately you are in a uh, variable mortgage rate, um, uh, and there's two types of variable mortgage rates, but the bottom line is um, when when they renew, um, uh, the variable Certain mortgage rates will, will go up immediately with interest rates. There's also variable, variable mortgage rates after a couple of years will go up. So definitely that's a problem. And, you know, this is a substantial increase monthly payment of, of uh, mortgage payments. So um, people are really worried and hopefully they're cutting back on other things so they can make these mortgage payments. Right. When you say cutting back, though, are, are there not fears that we'll see a recession then in 2023? Right. Um, so... Recession technically is two negative um, growth rates in GDP. It may that may not happen, but you know if it's point 
5% growth versus minus 0.1. I don't think that makes a difference to everybody. It'll slow down. Definitely, it'll slow down. Not a technical recession, but it will slow down. This is the only way you can reduce inflation, is to raise interest rates and slow down the economy. And that's what the bank is determined to do. Inflation is stubbornly high due to now wages, people demanding higher wages, firms charging higher prices. So inflationary expectations have gotten out of control. And this is what the bank is really trying to fight, reduce inflationary expectations, and they'll do whatever it takes to make that happen. And that means sustained high interest rates. So what, do you, what does that mean for people then who are looking for that raise to get more money you know, from their bosses in 2023? Tough negotiations, tough negotiations. The employer will tell you that, hey, the Bank of Canada and even, even the, the, uh, the governor mentioned at a, a few business meetings that encouraging employers not to offer much higher wages because inflation will come down. So it's going to be a tough negotiating process between the employer and the employee. You are seeing um, some examples of this happening. Um, I do believe one union asked for a 10% increase in wages, and they settled at 4%, which is still pretty high, but tough negotiations ahead. And this is the problem with inflation. It creates so much uncertainty. It creates, uh, it's very difficult to make correct decisions. And this is something that the bank wants to get rid of. Right. It's also difficult. It really puts employers, I think, in a tough spot too, though, doesn't it? Because they are having trouble getting enough employees, and if they don't offer more money, they can't get more employees. Absolutely. So uh, it depends on the type of uh, sector. It's certainly true in the service sector where you had a lot of employees leaving during the pandemic, and it's hard to get them back because it was very unstable. They lost their jobs. So, yes, there comes a point where employ- employers have to raise wages to get these people back. All right. So then do you see that as um, our employers heeding that call, do you think? Because it's very tough for them right now. Well, uh, there, is, there is some studies that show that uh, employers expect inflation to come down over the year. So uh, they're taking that into account when they're negotiating with with uh, employees. So um, it's it's really a tricky situation in terms of what's going to happen. And again, it depends on the type of sectors. If they have a monopoly on, if they are the main employ, employer, they have all the power to do what they want. So it depends on a sector by sector level. But in general, it's a difficult process, negotiation process to navigate throughout. Yeah, it throughout certainly is. Do you see a recession ahead for Canada in 2023? I, I I don't see that the technical definition of negative growth rates for two consecutive quarters. I see a slowdown each quarter, something like, say, 1% growth or a half percent growth. Um, it's still growing, but very, very low, meaning uh, fewer jobs, fewer job opportunities. And this is what people have to take into account, that their job opportunities may decline. So. They need to stop uh, or cut back spending a lot because they don't want to dip into their savings if they have savings at all. So this is what they need to prepare for. Um, and ways you can prepare for that is to you know, upgrade your skills, have your resume uh, up to date. So if something unfortunate happens, you lose your job or, or, or some hours, you can quickly move on to 
another job if your skills are updated. And you can get these updated skills. There are many online um, activities through universities that improve your 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 skill set. So that's right. something you should look at. It's and, so, you know, try and find a recession-proof job. It's so contradictory, it's though. It's so contradictory what we hear. I'm sure people are confused. They go, well, wait a minute. I thought there's a labor shortage and people are hiring, but now they're not hiring. They're not supposed to offer too much money and, and you shouldn't negotiate too hard. Like, all of those messages seem very contradictory. Right. So, again, it's in the service sectors where there's a shortage of people. And, um, yeah, I mean, this is the distortion that happens uh, with inflation. And uh, it's, it's something that needs to be eliminated. But, um, yeah, uh, it's a battle right now with the, with the firms and, and, and the employees over the next year in terms of uh, wage settlement. It's going to be an interesting one. All right, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you for having me. That is George Rodopoulos, who's an associate professor in the Department of Economics at York University, talking about the year ahead in the economy. 2023, is it going to be another bumpy ride? If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. We are talking New Year's resolutions. Of course we are. It's January 2nd. And that should mean that most people who made a resolution should still be on that bandwagon. Although you never know. Raji Selhal with us this morning. Good morning. Hi, Simi. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Yesterday, I was with my whole family at my folks' place where my mom makes a massive meal, a big feast for everybody to start off the new year. And my, uh, we're about to have dessert and my brother very ceremoniously, all kind of ominously says to everybody, all right, now it is time for us to share our New Year's resolutions. And we're like, okay, with bated breath, what's your New Year's resolution? You go first. He's like, I don't have one. I don't have one. I'm happy. <laughs> and then we go around oh, the table. Is he insinuating that people who make New Year's resolutions aren't happy? He was suggesting exactly that. And then he goes around the table and everyone's like, I don't have one this year. I don't have one. I don't have one. And we are apparently in step with most Canadians because a recent poll showed that only one in five Canadians I can see that. has a New Year's resolution this time around. And it seems to be because people are happier. But I think something else is at play yeah. that's not mentioned in these survey results. And I think it's that the pandemic changed us in ways that we haven't fully appreciated yet. And one of those ways is that folks are tired of the grind. Yes. They are tired of the pressure and of making themselves live up to these impossible goals and the pressure of starting something on the very first day of the year and to have to commit to it that day and follow through all year of failure, I think is something that doesn't sit well with people anymore. I think so too. I think the last couple of years have been so hard on people and there have been so many things thrown at us that were unexpected. And now, you know, people are just like, I just want to make it through the year. I don't want to put any added burden on myself. Totally. And then I think when people do have them, they tend to be softer on themselves. They're like, oh yeah. You mean you know, like I just was when I said like, I'm not going to hold myself to it, but I'm going to try this thing. Sorry, but that did elicit a giggle <laughs> from me because I was like, what is that, Simi? It's an effort. Committing or? No, I'm not committing. I'm trying because I don't, I don't want to set myself up for failure. I don't want to be so rigid that I'm feeling like I'm denying myself something, but it is certainly I'm going to be making the effort to cut a lot of stuff out and just kind of 
reset. Let's just say not a resolution, yeah. but just like a nutrition reset for the beginning of the year. And you'll feel healthier having set even just the intention. And I like the idea that you're not going to set yourself up for failure, leaving a little bit of space well, there. I do have a new exercise machine that I'm super excited to try out. Ooh. So I guess unintentionally, you know, I bought it because it was a Boxing Day sale. So I'm th- of course I guess. you did. I know, right? <laughs> but I'm really excited about it. I'm really excited about it. Well, if you're excited about it, you'll get into it. I was talking to a neighbor who told me that uh, they want to go for a walk every day for 45 minutes. And I was like, that's amazing. You can easily squeeze that Absolutely. in at some point in the day. So that's like, I think, setting yourself up for success. Okay. You're telling me though, as that calendar turned over to 2023, there wasn't Anything that you thought, "Mm, I really want to do this this year. No, and that's very unlike me. Yeah, I feel like it sounds I have cha- yeah, you. I feel like I have changed in the last year in that way too. Did we wear because- you down? Is that what happened? No, you know what? I usually have like 25 resolutions oh. and I'm one of those people who will be so confident that she's going to follow through on all of them that I hit this point in July where I'm like, June, July, I'm like, hey, all smug. I did that. I did that thing that I really wanted to do. And I don't always feel fantastic because I did it. Instead, I'm going, what's the next thing? (laughs) And this time I feel like, wait, maybe you guys did wear me down because I am far more chill. (laughs) Yes, that's good. (laughs) That's been a lot of hard work the last couple of years. Between you and my kids. Yes. I think also we perhaps have a greater appreciation of the moment. I think people just want to enjoy themselves right now and not worry about what they're not doing or what they should be doing or, you know, what might happen. It's just a, I want to enjoy this. Yeah, I hope so. If we're able to be more present, I mean, I could definitely welcome some more Zen into my life. That's for sure. Really? Oh yeah. I thought you were, were you going to get a dog this year? I thought this is the year that <laughs> This you're... is supposed to be the year, right? Yeah. That is not Zen. No. <laughs> a new puppy? No. That does not invite Zen into your life. Enjoyment, love, all sorts of great things. But not peace. But not peace. Okay. Not at the beginning, anyway. Good luck with that. Thanks, Rachi. Thanks, Simi. That's how Rachi's still all there talking about resolutions. Lots of people still do make them. Were you one of them? And what was it? I'm not holding myself to a hard and fast one. I'm just trying to do that kind of nutrition reset at the beginning of this year. How about you? Simi at cknw.com. You can call or text our buzz line 604-331-2899. This is Mornings with Simi. Thousands of people got together in downtown Vancouver on New Year's Eve and had a good time. And we know that that was the case, you know, in many places, even though there wasn't an official kind of family friendly outdoor New Year's Eve gathering. I mean, that's another topic, but let's find out how the weekend went. Joining us now is Sergeant Steve Addison with the Vancouver Police Department. Good morning and Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Simi. Let's talk about how it went this weekend. How did it go? Yeah, busy weekend like we expected. Um, New Year's Eve, always a busy night. Uh, Vancouver being the metropolitan center of uh, Metro Vancouver, it's the draw for everybody. So thousands of people, tens of thousands of people fled into the downtown core from um, not just play, neighborhoods in Vancouver, but from uh, surrounding areas. Always very challenging nights to police just because of the sheer number of people who come into the city. Anytime we get that many people into the city, um, it's, particularly in the downtown core, everybody congregates on Granville Street normally. It creates a number of uh, potential problems and public safety challenges. Really got to hand it to, to everybody who came out. Uh, by and large, no, there were no major issues. By and large, everybody was very good-natured, uh, on, on a very good behavior, very happy crowd, 
And also have to really hand it to the VPD officers who are out there because it's very challenging out there. It's very physically and mentally taxing to be out there for uh, 8, 10, 12, 14 hours at a time uh, when there's so many people. No kidding. Uh, but it was a success. It was a, it was a, it was a very positive night uh, you know what? And, a, and a good way to bring in the new year. I can't believe how, like, I feel, it feels so nice to hear that. You know, it feels so nice to hear that it went well. Yeah, Absolutely. It's been, uh, you know, for the for a long time now, we've been hearing uh, from a lot of people uh, concerns about public safety issues. Um, there's been a lot of talk in the city about uh, people's concerns over things like yeah. a random violent stranger attacks, um, uh, street disorder. Uh, it's really nice to be able to get out there. And, and a lot of this has to, is a result of our ability to, to, to mobilize uh, large numbers of police officers to get out there for, for a big night like this. We do this well. We've done it through the Olympics, fireworks, other major events that we have. Um, when big events happen, um, we've got a lot of experience and, and, and we know how to police these big events. And uh, we, we mobilized pretty much every available officer we had uh, to get out there on New Year's Eve. And our job out there is to really facilitate uh, people's ability to come down and feel safe and have a good time and be able to celebrate and party uh, and do it in an environment where um, they can, you know, let loose a little bit, but but still be safe and feel safe while they're doing it. Right. Do we have an idea of how large the crowd was or was it uh, like on par with expectations? It, you know, it's always really hard to estimate crowds. I was down on Granville Street. Um, anecdotally, I haven't seen a crowd that size um, in years. It's like it was like the Olympics, um, wow. the Olympic size crowds on Granville Street. Um, and, and part of that might have been because there was no major event happening. There was no like one specific draw like we have for uh, fireworks at English Bay or Canada Day uh, where there's a fireworks celebration. So when people come into the city and a lot of them did come in thinking that there was going to be fireworks or a major event. Um, when, but when they do come in, Granville Street tends to be the place where people come. And if you don't have a prepaid ticket and you don't want to wait in line to get into a bar, uh, what we do have is people uh, just hanging out, hanging out on Granville Street, walking up and down, um, waiting to bring in the new year. That creates public safety challenges on its own, especially when we've got you know lots of people hanging out, uh, some liquor flowing, uh, and the potential for conflict. But as I say, by and large, everybody was was really good, uh, really great. There were no major nice. incidents. You talked about the way in which the VPD kind of polices these big events and how obviously you're very used to that. But I wonder, has anything changed with that plan given the concerns that we've heard about over the past year or two? Have you had to tweak it? Were there certain things like goals that you had for this New Year's Eve? No, you know what? We know whether it's, I mean, from our experience, things like uh, things like the Olympics, the Santa Claus parades, uh, which unfortunately we haven't had in a few years, fireworks. We know uh, big events draw lots of people. When lots of people come uh, into the city, it creates the potential for uh, conflicts. It's conflicts that happen when we've got people, you know, whether you're in your large crowds bumping elbows, if there's liquor flowing, uh, that sort of thing. Um, but there's also the, uh, the other things that we need to be aware about. Uh, we need to be aware of, you know, potential uh, terrorist in- incidents, um, uh, other uh, public safety issues that may arise. So our job is to get out there, uh, to be visible, uh, to to act as hosts, uh, to meet and greet people, to mitigate conflicts as they arise. So you would have, if you were out there, you would have seen our officers helping people in medical distress, lots of people who had had too much to drink, maybe getting them uh, ambulance or fire to come provide medical assistance if they were unable to care for themselves, getting people in cabs, getting people in Ubers at the end of the night when it, w- when it was time to get out of there, and diffusing those little conflicts that arise 
um, when we have large crowds before they become bigger conflicts because we know that when those little when we have lots of people in a small confined area uh, those little conflicts can quickly escalate so really our job is to be out there be present be available for people and to uh, just to really facilitate people having a good time Okay. And was there more officers than you've had sort of in past large events, would you say? Like, was it an all hands on deck situation? It was an all-hands-on-deck situation. I don't have the specific numbers of officers um, uh, that were deployed, but we had, you know, everybody from officers on bikes, uh, on foot walking in gro- on Granville Street, uh, gang uh, crime unit, uh, traffic members, quick response teams, um, mostly in the north end of the city, the downtown core and Gastown, but all, extra officers throughout the city. Uh, and, it, yeah, it very much was an all-hands-on-deck situation. Mm-hmm. Really got to hand it to all the officers who stepped up. It's physically challenging. It's It's mentally challenging. Uh, to be on for, especially out um, uh, for 8, 10, 12, 14 hours um, in a crowd like that, it's hard work. And when I went home just before 7 in the morning, there were still officers who had been out there all night um, and uh, were going into their 12th or 13th hour. So wow. um, you really got to hand it to everybody for uh, for making it a safe night. But if only it was always like that, right? No kidding. <laughs> if only every Saturday night was kind of like that one. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> no luck with that one. All right. Thank you so much for your time this morning. You bet, Sammy. Take care. This is Mornings with Simi. Canada, like many other countries, has put some rules into place. They made that announcement this weekend, the federal government did, saying that people who are going to be coming here for tourist purposes from China, Hong Kong and Macau will have to test negative for COVID-19 before leaving to come and visit Canada. And that will apply to all air travelers age two and older and starts on January the 5th. And as I mentioned, many countries are doing this right now because China has reversed its very strict COVID-19 control measures. And now what you're seeing is a real spread of COVID-19 in that country. What does that mean, though, for variants? Well, joining us now is Carrie Bowman, who's a professor in bioethics and global health at the University of Toronto. Thank you very much for joining us. Happy to do so. So are you, do you think we're going to see more variants as a result of this? I think probably not. But, you know, I don't know. I mean, this this pandemic is very, very hard to absolutely predict. I mean, the heart of the question is, is this an effective strategy? You know, and and on the surface of it, we're going to say, like, why wouldn't we test if they've got this explosion? What difference does it make? But, you know, on site testing, um, this, this form of testing has proven itself not to be very effective throughout this pandemic. And, and you know, there are other ways of approaching this, this great challenge, like wastewater testing of, of planes and airports. Right. We've seen that the Vancouver International Airport has said they are going to move towards that wastewater testing. Why is that more effective? Well, you know, you need an epidemiologist to say to, to really give you the ins and outs of it. But it, it, it's, it's more accurate. Um, what, what tends to happen with people taking rapid COVID tests or COVID on arrival is that the symptoms and, and the positivity may not trigger for several days. So, so that would occur. You know, what we do know, so why are we doing this? Well, everyone else is doing it as part of it. And it feels like it makes sense. It feels like the right thing to do, but it doesn't necessarily mean it is. Um, now, many people argue that this will force China into being more transparent as to what their data actually is. I'm not sure that's true, but, you know, if it works, probably good. I I think it's also fairly adversarial. And, you know, I I think whatever China does at this point, they're going to be criticized. Um, You know, 
look, they've made some horrible mistakes. I'm not trying to justify everything that they've done. But, you know, we were horrified by their zero policy, zero COVID policy. We're horrified by this. You know, um, in, in their own way, they're trying to figure this out as well. You've said that it's so important that we stay evidence-based. What does that mean? So what kind of evidence-based issues are you talking about? Well, you know, by testing people coming in from China, do we have a clear idea and can we identify uh, potential risks? And the answer to that is almost certainly not. It's not a very effective strategy. So what would be a more effective strategy is is just that's the first I've heard that Vancouver is going to do that. I commend them for it. I think that's great. Uh, when I say that, I'm talking about wastewater testing. I think that's a much, much better strategy. But, you know, the problem is we don't really know what the COVID situation is in China. I mean, the data they're releasing doesn't seem to line up with the reality at all. But and look, it's not on the same level and I'm not suggesting it is. But Canada, we also don't really know what's going on, not on the same level as China. But, you know, we've got a lot of blind spots in this country as well. So I I think throughout the pandemic and we started off with this is, you know, let's follow the science. So this may feel like the right thing to do, um, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's the best strategy. Uh, So looking at what happens in China right now, the way it is spreading, was that inevitable in your studies in global health? Was it inevitable that was going to happen once all these restrictions were lifted? Well, I think so because of Omicron. So Omicron is tenacious. And remember, even with all those restrictions, it was still breaking through left, right and center. Omicron is really unbelievable when it comes to spread. And then it's a question of which Omicron as well. So I think it probably was inevitable. And I think the Chinese government probably realized it's inevitable and and they need to go with that. But, you know, and I, I think a lot of people listening will know that one of the challenges is is that vaccination rates are not that high in parts of China, and there's questions about the quality of vaccine as well. So, you know, they may be facing something very different than we have seen. Um, also, you know, I, I, as a geopolitical move, I don't think it's a great idea. I, you know, I... I I think we really have to hang together globally in terms of evidence-based approaches, and I don't think this is part of that strategy. And I think anything that elevates tension between nations is in the long term not a good idea. What do you think other nations have been hanging together? Is Canada part of a a larger group of, of approaching this the same way? Well, we're hanging together in terms of Western culture is hanging together in terms of let's, you know, because the UK just reversed their decision. Canada reversed their decision. I, if I remember correctly, and I think I do, Australia just announced that they're going to do it. That still doesn't mean, you know, that's Western nations hanging together. And I, I think when we look at the pandemic overall, you might remember and people listening might remember when Omicron first began to emerge from South Africa, they willingly shared all of their data with us on the spot. And we put in very, very restrictive um, travel regulations that really weren't based very strongly on evidence at all and put people in very difficult situations coming in uh, from that country. I think we have to be much more careful about these strategies. Okay. And are we the learning though? I mean, you say we have to be more careful. When are we going to be more careful and learn that? Oh, I don't want to sound too cynical, but I don't think so, (laughs) because we're in year three and we're kind of botching it. Um, I don't see it. I mean, I think Canada has done fairly well, a big picture with COVID, but I think where we haven't. 
And I don't think this story is really going to be told until the years ahead when we have some more distance from this. I, I think in terms of our level of global cooperation, and I don't mean just with countries that we like, I mean with everybody, has not been great. Um, you know, we had the COVAX, as you might remember, the shared yeah. vaccine strategy. We took stuff from it. We were slow to react. Um, we had a lot of uh, extra vaccines that were never distributed. You know, I, I think that's our weakness is we have not really risen to the global challenge very well. Um, and, and, you know, time will tell. This must be a fascinating time to be in your line of work. It is. But boy, it creates lots of controversy. I mean, you know, it's amazing how strong people's emotional reactions to Chinese policy can be. Um, I, you know, I'm not saying this is why I hold this position, but I, I've spent a lot of time in China and I used to live in Hong Kong. And, you know, there, there's profound differences in how they're going to view these things. And it's not just who's right and who's wrong. There's very different political and cultural differences in how to approach things. And I, I don't think we've been in entirely open-minded about that. Right. It just seems right now they're in a bit of a rush to catch up, right, with everybody else. I think they are. I think they are. And look, they're backwards to the wall. I mean, you know, zero COVID kind of made maybe, maybe I say this with huge caution, more sense before Omicron, but Omicron just spreads like wildfire as we've seen. And, you know, we gave up too. And like, who do you, like the amount of people you probably know and I know that have had Omicron is huge, huge. So we kind of did our own backtracking as well. And, you know, I'm not sure we got that wrong either. Oh, I know. We're still learning. So would you say, when do you <laughs> think we will get a good handle on the lessons learned on this? Do you think, what, what's it going to take? Another five years before we can look back and say, oh, well, I see what we did Well, it depends when there. this ends, right? Doesn't it? It depends when this ends is one thing. But, you know, it, it, it's also our noses in it. And I include myself in this, by the way. I, I'm not sure any of us, including me, have the objectivity that we really need to look at the big picture. So I'm, I'm going to go with five years, but plus or minus, something like that, maybe 10 <laughs> it will certainly keep you busy, people in your line of work, right? Studying this. Yes, Thank, it will. Th- thanks so much for your time this morning. You're very welcome. Take care. That's Carrie Bowman, professor in bioethics and global health at the University of Toronto. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, in a lot of ways, we really dodged one last week when the king tide came in and we had all that heavy rain and there was concerns about flooding and it didn't happen, which is great. But that doesn't mean that those high tides didn't still have an impact. To talk more about that, our contributor, Raji Sohal, joins us now. Good morning, Raji. Hey, Simi. Yeah, I headed down to the beach to see what the king tide had done. And, you know, the ocean tides are always bringing in a little bit of trash, uh, some plastics. But with the king tide that we had last Tuesday, it was so high that it broke records, right, in height. And what did that mean for the shoreline? It means the shorelines at our beaches are covered in trash. Now, some of it is obvious, these uh, bags of chips, empty bags, chips, uh, plastic bottles, that kind of thing. But even more insidious is all of these tiny pieces, right? I went to the beach and looked around me and I could not believe that all of these tiny white things that I saw, I was assuming they were broken shell. 
It was styrofoam. Oh, still in this day and age. Yeah. And I got down on my knees, picked up these pieces, was holding them in my hand. And I was just shocked that this sea of white that I was seeing was indeed styrofoam. And I met up with Alison Wood from Ocean Ambassadors at the beach. She was picking up trash as part of the Ocean Ambassadors Pick Up 3 initiative. She's literally calling out to passersby, beginning of the new year, trying to get people excited about cleaning up our beaches and asking everyone to pick up three. Of course, the thing is, when you're at the beach and you're looking at this devastation, all this styrofoam everywhere, you realize, I can't just pick up three. And after a few minutes there, you've got 100 pieces and people are putting these into buckets and stuff. So here's my conversation with Allison at the beach. There's a a whole bunch over here. You guys want to help us clean up plastic? Hey guys, have you heard about Pick Up Three? No. So Pick Up Three is we're trying to start a movement where we get everybody every time they go to the beach to pick up three pieces of garbage and if everybody in the world did that it would make a huge difference do you guys want to help me i brought a couple of buckets so look at look at this but um these are all little pieces of styrofoam check it out here i'm going to give you each bucket. see if we can get these apart there you go. is that, that that's, yeah, right? that's styrofoam yeah so wow, this is all, so this is all styrofoam right here, all of these pieces. So what we could do is we can keep track and then we're going to, we're going to um, report it on our trash meter afterwards. Okay. So you guys want to help me? So, oh, Lucas, how many did you put in there, Lucas? Uh, three. Three. Okay. So we have maybe six in that one. Okay. Two. So I would have thought that this styrofoam yeah, maybe was from some somebody's broken lunchbox, but this came in with the king tide? Yeah, so the, this, there's always styrofoam coming in with the tides, but what's happened because it's so much higher and then winter storms as well, a lot of the styrofoam comes from broken docks and um, fishing buoys and things like that. And so we see it more because it's here. But sadly, normally, even if it's down on the rocks, we would just think they're shells. And so we're seeing so many more. So we actually picked up, um, a friend and I, this morning, we picked up um, 8,000 pieces of styrofoam. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. And I'm even seeing like down here, there's some chunks. Yeah. So every time there's this kind of weather. Ooh, what is that? Well, that's like another kind of styrofoam, maybe like from a cup or th- something, do you think? Certainly not Skiff. for a fish. It's not good in our oceans, is it? No. And then you can see it. Um, so you can see how it sticks to the logs even. So it's, mm-hmm. it's almost like it's got static electricity and they stick to each other. So it's just everywhere here. And you imagine like how many pieces are in this, all of this here, all along the log. It really is everywhere. Yeah. And this will be across the coast of British Columbia. Um, so what what came to our minds was, wow, what if with this new year starting tomorrow and people going down to the beach for their polar bear swims and getting out for walks, what if we called on everybody in BC to say, hey, why not tomorrow go and pick up some of this styrofoam foam and start off the year right? And as you've experienced, like until you see it and recognize it as styrofoam, you don't really, you can't really comprehend the scope of the problem. 
And why is styrofoam such a problem? Like we're seeing tons of it. Yeah. Why uh, is it such so, a problem? Styrofoam, you can see how it breaks down its little balls, typically. And it breaks down. It just keeps breaking and breaking down into smaller and small, smaller pieces. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Look at those. Wow. That's a big one. Huge. Um, until it's microscopically small. So scientists now describe more of a fog in the ocean than we used to think of the plastic island, the Great Pacific Garbage yeah. Patch. But it's much more complex than that because once it gets to the, that size, there is really no way right now of us getting that plastic out of the ocean. And what's the impact? So we know that it's in the food chains of most marine mammals. Um, and we don't know a lot about the, the long-term impacts of the, the effects of plastic getting into humans. Um, and also um, plastic is, is attracted to other synthetics in the ocean. So they are... What happens is you get fertilizers and oils and gas that'll attach onto the plastics. So if you think about a fish, say a salmon. So if the salmon had this piece of plastic, it would go in its stomach and we wouldn't eat the plastic. But what is the effect of the, the fertilizer or the other pollutants that happen to be attached to this plastic on us when we're eating that fish? And, and that research is currently happening. Um, so we don't really know yet, but... Um, definitely something that we can't clean our way out of even though we're down at the beach cleaning up we want people to recognize wow we need to start living differently we need to stop the flow of plastic into the ocean that was amazing when she said eight thousand pieces that she had picked up that just boggles the mind yeah, and actually you find yourself being able to pick up that much pretty quickly, Simi. And the pieces, the more insidious ones are these tiny ones and they're just everywhere. They're on logs, they're stuck to barnacles, they're stuck to the mussels and the clams. And it, you know, it's easy when you're out there looking at it to get overwhelmed by it and think, oh boy, like this is really upsetting, depressing even, that this is what our oceans are filled with. This is what the king tide showed us. But you pick it up and you go, okay, right. I can make a little tiny difference. And, you know, if you go with your family or bring a friend to do it, they can also make a tiny difference. And Pick Up Three is this awesome initiative by Ocean Ambassador to do exactly that, to go to the beach, any beach here in BC, and just pick up three pieces as a minimum every time you go to the beach to make a difference. And you can go to their website and log the trash that you pick up. You can record it on their trash meter app that they have there. And my kids had a really fun time doing that and watching it accumulate. They also had fun practicing counting over 300 because unfortunately <laughs> that's how high we got. That's still pretty good though that you get like how long were you there for that you were able to collect that much? You know we were there probably an hour and felt like you that's know that's really good just in a, a little tiny corner we were able to clean up a little bit but I was most struck by seeing how much of that white stuff I was seeing was not shells it was not broken shells it was styrofoam that was a that was actually a shocker for me. That's a, that's a shocker too when you think about it. Like we probably every once in a while see bits of garbage or plastic, 
But when people dedicate themselves to picking it up like that, you think, wow, we still have this huge problem of all this litter, don't we? Yeah. And without the king tide, so you would see trash for sure uh, on the shoreline, but it brought in stuff from way in the middle of the ocean. And, uh, and, you know, if you are a fisher yourself, if you spend time swimming in the ocean, this is stuff maybe that you, you think of more often, but it's definitely something that we could all pay a little bit more attention to. And also just thinking about single use plastics. Um, certainly having my kids out there at the beach with me, picking up the trash made, I was listening to their conversations with one another. They're going, asking each other things like, hmm, I don't know if I, I really want to have stickers anymore. I want to, I don't know if I should be putting See, my stuff in a plastic bag. The best thing to do for ideas like this is to get kids involved. Always. Because you know what they're going to do now? They're going to keep an eye on you. Raji, and they're going to—they're going <laughs> to hold. Well, they hold, kids hold their parents accountable, good, right? And parents want to be their best selves, especially in front of their kids. So if you get your kids involved in this, and it turns out your kids are going to start judging you for how many single-use plastics you have. So later well, it's on, change some the habits. same day, I was grabbing a coffee, and it was a single-use cup, and. Who stopped me in my tracks right? and said, uh, why don't you just wait till you can have one at home? <laughs> really? Four-year-old. Oh, that's the thing. That's how you change the world with all the four-year-olds out there. That's where um, you start. That is. Raji, thank you. Thank you, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's talk about what's changing for 2023. And there's a big one in real estate, actually. So across Canada, the federal government has implemented a foreign home buyers ban that will be in effect for two years. It took effect yesterday. The idea being that this would help cool speculation in the housing market. But is this going to work or is it just too late to do that? Well, joining us now to talk about this is Moshe Lander, who's a senior lecturer at the Department of Economics at Concordia University. Thank you so much for joining us. Good morning. What do you think of this? Uh, it's a nice idea, but it's badly implemented. So I don't think it's going to work. Why do you think it's, it's badly implemented? Well, you know, whenever you apply these rules, what inevitably happens is that you start creating carve outs and there's going to be exemptions and exceptions. And that's the type, the type of thing that starts allowing then people to skirt the rules. It, it's, it's assuming that when you put a rule in place, people just shrug their shoulders and say, oh, well, I guess that's now the rule. And what inevitably happens is people start saying, I want to buy a house in Canada. I don't live in Canada. How do I get around this? And, and these exceptions and exemptions are going to be exactly the way that they're going to exploit uh, the, the bad legislation. Okay, so are there ways for people to do that? Sure. I, I mean, inevitably, what you're going to probably see is that some foreigner is going to find a Canadian who is perfectly allowed to buy as much as they want uh, and buy it through them. It, it does provide within the law that if you're found knowingly helping uh, foreigners to violate this law, you could be fined up to $10,000. But when you think about what property costs in greater Vancouver, what's a $10,000 fine in the grand scheme of things, right? Especially if the value of the property goes up more than $10,000, this would just be seen as a cost of doing business. And so it's not going to be the type of thing that's going to detract, or that's going to detract foreigners from, from buying homes if that's what they really want to do. Is this one of those things where the headlines you hope will, you know, discourage people as opposed to the actual enforcement of a possible penalty? 
Yeah, so I, I don't know that it's really going to dis, uh, to detract. I think what it's going to do is provide comfort to Canadians that feel that somehow foreigners are responsible for messing up the, the housing market. So uh, a- any foreigner is just going to recognize, all right, there's now up to a $10,000 cost now uh, of doing business if you want to buy a home. For Canadians, uh, it's going to be, oh, well, we now have legislation in place. This should now make uh, housing affordable for us. And that's the type of thing then that when it fails to happen, we're going to get angry at our elected officials, not because of the bad legislation, but because we're going to get angry at them uh, for, uh, you know, not making it stricter or not making it uh, uh, more aggressive or making the fines more serious. So what's going to happen then in a year or two, in a year when we realize that this really isn't having much effect? Well, you're going to have me back on again, and I'm going to say, I told you so. Um, but beyond beyond that, um, look, politicians are, are, are powerless at the federal level to really fix uh, local housing markets, right? At the end of the day, housing markets uh, are, are skyrocketing out of control, at least in part because local municipalities have very restrictive zoning laws on creating new housing. If, if you realize that you could build a home uh, in Greater Vancouver for $250,000, $300,000 and immediately put it on the market for sale at dollars $800,000, uh, you would assume that a local home builder would say, I'm perfectly happy to build an entire new subdivision of homes uh, with that type of profit margin on the line. The reason why they won't, though, is because local homeowners are a very effective lobby at preventing local city councils from loosening up uh, construction and, and zoning laws. Right. I also, I mean, I guess I'm curious about the timing of this too, the the federal home buyers, the fe- foreign home buyers ban, because BC has been talking about and doing this and implementing things like this, well, since 2015, 2016, and we still seem to have a crazy out of control housing market. And that's exactly it, right? Like this is not going to fix the problem. Uh, if you're that motivated to get your money out of, for for most of the West Coast, it's going to be uh, out of Asia. Uh, again, this is just a cost of doing business. And so I think that the, the local politicians haven't been powerless to create laws. It's just recognizing that whatever laws they create are going to be powerless to stop the problem. If your government in Victoria uh, wants to try and create affordable housing in Vancouver or in the interior, they can't do it. They they have to be able to arm twist the local city councillors in Vancouver and Richmond and even further into Kelowna and Kamloops to, to change zoning laws. And, and that's why inevitably this problem always seems to be present. Uh, it, it's local city councillors realize that they're able to deflect the blame up to the provincial or federal level and say, uh, well, they don't seem to be particularly concerned, realizing that it, it's their problem to fix, but we're not focusing our ire on the local politicians. What about interest rates? It seems to me that with the rising interest rates, that is what is really having an impact on slowing the market down. You're exactly right. And uh, higher interest rates, you know, we started off last year now uh, at record lows and we start off this year uh, at 20 year highs. And so there's no question that when interest rates go up that fast uh, and that much, it it is going to take some of the starch out of the housing market uh, and that'll deflect some of the speculative nature of housing. Uh, But at the end of the day, there's still... uh, tens of thousands uh, of people in greater Vancouver that want to get onto that housing market. And once they get used to this 
as the new normal, especially if their wages manage to catch up with some of the inflation that we saw last year, uh, they're just going to say that this is now the cost of doing business. And while they might not be able to buy the million-dollar, multi-million-dollar homes uh, that they might have at the beginning of last year, they're certainly going to be able to make a dent into the mid-size, low end of the market. Uh, and, and that's just going to propel prices higher as well if supply can't keep up with demand. Is that what is keeping the market still like prices, I should say, not the market, prices relatively buoyant, like they're still higher. That is what is comfortable for many people to get into the market. Is it because there is that expectation now that this is what real estate costs? Yeah, and that's exactly it, right? So expectations play a huge role in any marketplace because it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you believe that prices are going to go down and go down substantially, then probably if you own a home, you would look to try and sell it right now. But in the act of a lot of people looking to sell their homes, what's going to happen? It's that prices are going to go down, which is exactly what your expectation was from the beginning. If you believe that prices are going to go up and continue to go up, then you're going to want to try and get your hands on any property that you can right now, but that again becomes the self-fulfilling prophecy that it's going to drive prices higher because everybody's going to go looking to grab whatever they can right now. All right. So what are your predictions then, Moshe, for the year ahead when it comes to real estate? So I think we're going to see a dip at the beginning of the year. Uh, we saw it at the end of last year, and and that's probably just the, the continued reaction of those high interest rates. But in about six months' time, eight months' time, assuming that if we do have a recession, it's rather mild or we don't even have one at all, uh, the market's going to start to turn again. We we still have not addressed the major problem, which is cities are not making it easy to build homes. And that is because homeowners are that effective lobby. That's not going to change any time this year. And so at some point, we're going to continue to see housing prices escalate upwards. Uh, and if wages and incomes don't keep pace, we're going to continue to talk about a housing affordability problem for a, a lot of people in Canada, not just in, in Vancouver. And we'll be talking to you again again about it, I'm sure. Moshe, thank you so much for being with us. I will be here anytime. Moshe Lander is a senior lecturer at the Department of Economics at Concordia University, talking about the housing market. Foreign homebuyers ban going into effect, well, went into effect yesterday, so January 1st, and will be in effect for two years right across Canada. And if you think this, do you think it's a good thing? Do you think this is going to have some kind of impact? Are you just glad the federal government did something or not? 